Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. You're in Matthew chapter number 6 this morning, Matthew chapter number 6. And I want to continue this morning with our study on uh, the model prayer, or the Lord's Prayer, if you will. And we find that here in our text in Matthew chapter 6. This prayer really is a framework by which Every believer should make their own prayer and request unto God. Uh, When the scripture says there in the passage in verse number 9, After this manner therefore pray ye, it is not developing the idea that you should pray this prayer exclusively. Now that doesn't mean that there's any problem with incorporating this into your prayer or that there's any issue with you reciting this prayer or that there's any issue with you memorizing this prayer. But it is really to be seen as something of a framework by which there is a proper way of praying to God in heaven. I think a lot of times we, like the disciples, need to go unto the Lord like they did in the 11th and 18th chapter of Luke and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Uh, It is off the case that one of the reasons why there is such lack of answers to prayers in the life of a believer is for many reasons. One of those is that we have not prayed correctly or that we have not prayed at all. When I speak of correctly, there is a model by which we should address the God in heaven. Uh, Effective prayer, effective prayer. James chapter 5 speaks of this, that the effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man, what does it do? It availeth much. I would have, I would be a desirous one to have my prayers be effective when I'm praying. I don't know about you, but I realize daily how short my life is. Um, And I think we're all perhaps there, except for some of the youth, you know, there's always tomorrow with the youth. But the older you get, the the more uh, small that time ahead seems to be. And so with that, I want anything that I invest my time in to be uh, full of benefit. And when I pray, and I pray according to His will and according to His purpose and for His glory to be made manifest, I'm effectively praying. And I want to have effective prayers before Him. And if so, this is in fact a model by which we should address. And so for the coming weeks, I want to break this down into a series of messages as we'll just look a little phrase upon phrase on the priorities that the Lord prayed in this prayer that he modeled for his believers, for his disciples to engage in. Note this first phrase this morning and what will be really our text. He says, after this manner, therefore pray ye. And here's really the title of the message, the theme of the message, the text of the message. Our Father, which art in heaven. Our Father, which art in heaven. So if you're taking notes, there's two points. The Father in heaven. Let's look at this a little bit this morning, shall we? Note, if you will, here he directs his disciples to their proper address. I should say this just as a side note. When we pray, we're not praying to Jesus Christ. When we pray, we're not praying to the Holy Spirit of God. When we pray, the proper address is our Father which art in heaven. There's a number of things to consider about this, right? As we are Trinitarians, we believe in the biblical trinity. All three were engaged in your uh, salvation. 
It was through the foreknowledge, Peter says, of the Father. It was through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it was through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit of God. And each of them play a specific role in who you pray to. And so sometimes we get the idea that, well, they're three in one, so it really doesn't matter. It's just three different names. But there is a proper focus to be had. For instance, when you look through the Gospels and you think of uh, God's will, it's an easy thing to think that God's will for your life and Jesus' will for your life is the same thing. And that is true. However, they are distinct. In fact, I would say of you that when referencing the will of God, it's always a referencing of God the Father. Jesus Christ is our mediator. He is the one who, through whose finished work you and I are able to approach the throne of God. It is He that sits on the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And of course I am thankful for the Spirit of God. Hebrews chapter, or rather Romans chapter 8 talks about praying with us with groanings that cannot be uttered. But a proper address is when we pray, we're praying to the Father God in heaven. And we're doing so through or in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know that we need to conclude every prayer and start every invocation with dear Father and close it with in Jesus Christ's name I pray. That can become somewhat habitual. But the focus theologically, biblically, truthfully is that we are praying to God the Father in heaven. Now, this idea of the fatherhood of God or God the Father or the fact that God is the Father was well known to Israel, both believing and unbelieving. Let me just give a couple of thoughts to consider. For instance, as regard to Israel, they were very, very familiar with the exalted statement, Our Father in Heaven. Not only as it related to God, but they even had it in a physical sense as it would relate to Abraham. But I digress. Israel had well known the concept that God was their Father. For instance, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, Moses, Moses is uh, going to approach Pharaoh and he's going to get into uh, discussion with Pharaoh with the sovereign theme or God's will of this, let my people go. And a wonderful expression is made known in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22 where the Lord declares, Israel is my firstborn son. Well, if that's proclaimed, and it was, and if it's preserved in text, Israel is familiar with the sovereignty by which God had called out Israel, Abraham, out of the Ur of Chaldean and had tithed unto himself a people that they should be a peculiar people and to be under the decree of the Father and Godhead and look forward to the salvation of the incarnate Christ. They understood the idea of the fatherhood of God. In speaking of Isaiah and even uh, Malachi and both of them in chapter 1, they identify the fatherhood and as it's related to Israel nationally by underscoring the idea that Israel was a rebellious child. That is the opening verse of Isaiah and Malachi. Israel is foreseen, or I should say prophesied, to be a rebellious child. Well, if you're a rebellious child, what do you have to have? You have to have a parent at some point. In this sense, in context of what we're speaking of this morning, Israel saw in the revealed Word of God and the prophesied Word of God that God the Father, in fact, was their Father. But that's not the only place you see it. In a proper sense, you see a fatherhood of God as it relates to the Gentile world. In Acts chapter 17, 
Paul has left some of his co-laborers aside. He has went into Athens. If memory serves me correct, he has left to go to Athens because it was not safe for him to be in Thessalonica, and so he's gone to Athens. And while in Athens, he's on a place called Mars Hill, an elevated plain, and nearby all of the great works of Grecian culture. And he begins, he's moved in his spirit as he sees an image that is erected to an unknown God and begins to talk with all of those philosophers, all of those Hellenized pagans that were present. And in chapter 7, verse 28, he makes a profound statement. He said, for we also are his offspring. Speaking of one of these pagan poets that he's quoting. Paul identifies, he does not remediate that, he does not stipulate that whatsoever. He simply makes a declarative statement that even the Gentiles, in some regards, saw God as their father. Now, I'd like to interject something in here, lest there be more confusion, but that is this, that God's relationship to the unbelieving world is always limited to the sense that he is their creator. When I speak of as Paul referenced in chapter 17 of Acts. He's not talking about all of the unredeemed pagans being somehow part of the redemptive plan by vesture of them being born. He's not speaking of a universal gospel. That's what a universal gospel is. That idea that Jesus Christ died for all the world and therefore because you're part of the world you are somehow saved. No. But it is true of this. In the beginning God created the heavens of the earth. And then it is true that God created man on that sixth day and that God created Eve and they bonded together under the, under the very command of God in holy matrimony and gave forth sons and daughters. And from that very place came every tribe and kindred that is existent today. In that very sense, in a sense of creation, you would say that all the world should see God as their father. Now the reality is everyone born in human's race has to make an individual decision. In John chapter 8, speaking to the Pharisees that were nationally and ethnic Jews who would see God as their father in a national sense, the Lord speaks to them in John chapter 8 verse 44 and says, ye are your father, ye are of your father the devil. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Who was their father? Was it God the Father in heaven? Or was it Lucifer? Who was their father? Well, the essence is, in a sense of creation, all humanity bears, in essence, the very image of God. For it was God in Genesis chapter 3 that said, let us make man in our own image. But in a practical, in a sanctified way, every individual will not resemble the God that has created them. For they are estranged from God. They have gone about, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, going their own way. They are defiled. They are the enemies of God. So circle this back to our passage this morning as he's talking in context to his disciples. He said, when ye, the disciples, ye believers pray, start your prayer with this, our Father which art in heaven. That then means more than just the idea that you are part of the human race. For a child of God, we are considered the sons of God in a more noble strain than simply just our creation. We are considered the sons of God by fact of the glorious salvation that we by faith obeyed. I think of John chapter 1 and verse 12. It says this, 
But he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the what? Sons of God. Even to them which believe on his name. I become a son of God, not simply in the aspect of creation. I become a son of God being bought by his marvelous blood, being purchased by Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I become a son of God when I receive salvation. No wonder in Romans chapter 4 he speaks on this wise. And he says that through Jesus Christ we have access to the very throne room of God. Why? Because I am a son of God, not simply by creation, but I'm a son of God by salvation. I'm a son of God by the adoption of God. I think of Romans chapter 14 and Romans chapter 15. He talks in, in regards of, of the, the Spirit bearing witness to our spirit that we are the sons of God. I'm a son of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 reminds us, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That's a marvelous thing to consider. This idea that he's speaking of here in verse number 9, he's not singularly talking of what Israel felt God the Father was. And there's an element of truth. There's been no other nation by which God has intervened in their actions greater than the nation of Israel. There's been no other people group that has had more angelic appearances unto them than the nation of Israel. And in that sense of how God the Father had intervened and preserved those people and continued to preserve them this day, they could see God as their Father. But that alone did not make them save. The secular humanist, the humanist, even those today that are not saved can look and say, yes, there was intelligent design, but that is not the same thing as what's being referenced here in verse number 9, our Father which art in heaven. This speaks of one that is bought. This speaks of one who is translated from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. Second Peter chapter 1 speaks of this thought. He says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. What a powerful sentiment. I am the Son of God by birth. You see, faithful Jews had known of this concept. They had known him in a very personal way. I think about Abraham. Did not Abraham commune with God? Yes. They had a great message during the preaching conference about Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham praying over and over and beseeching the Father which is in heaven that God would hold back judgment if there'd only be a certain number of believers present. Abraham had a very real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, of Abraham it is said that he was in fact the friend of God. Abraham knew of this distinction. Moses communed with God. Moses knew of this distinction. Joshua knew of this distinction. David knew of this distinction. However, in a national sense, as it recalls to Israel to our mind, this distinction was not entirely known. Why? Because they allowed themselves to associate with pagan gods and pagan people. He, that is God the Father, had simply just become a faded figurehead that once moved in the heart of their ancient relatives. You know, I'm sad to say that in a lot of Christian homes, that's exactly what occurs as well. That there's a saintly grandma or a saintly granddad 
that knew how to pray. And God answered their prayers and preserved their children. And those children raised in life got away from the teachings of truth. And a generation arose that knew not God. And when you speak of biblical truth and biblical morality and you speak of prayer and worship in church, it's just some faded figurehead that grandma and grandpa used to love. There is not a personal relationship. My, what a danger in the life of any Christian when our prayers become so jaded and empty and fail to enjoy the beauty that can be had as we commune with the Father God in heaven. This idea of Him being our Father is not only, if you will, an exalted statement, but in a reality, it's an exalted significance. I am not just singularly praying to the man upstairs. I'm not praying to the big guy. I'm praying to God the Father. Think about that with me if you will for a moment. Because I'm praying of God the Father, the exalted significance is I am praying to the Creator God. The Hebrew phraseology ex nohelio comes to mind. He is not one that just framed the world into existence. That is not the connotation of one that fitted two pre-existing boards together or that wired two wires together or that patched a hole in something. There was not a world that existed and then he perfected it. Ex nohelio says, out of nothing. There was nothingness. And God made the world upon which you and I exist. When I think of who I pray to, I pray to the Father and God. It's an exalted significance. It speaks of a divine creator. Because it speaks of a divine creator, it speaks of a comprehensive plan. I am thankful for this. I don't know about you. But if I ever was going to build a house, I have not the creative abilities or the mental comprehension by which I should just wing it. Now, there are some folks that just their mind works so wondrously different and they can see a whole picture and break it down into parts. For myself, it's not that way. I've sit there and put dot upon dot upon dot and build it on paper or on pad before I can go and do anything with it. And even then, it's a little sketchy. You know, when you think about your sovereign God that created all, you need to think about a God that had a sovereign plan. He didn't just wing it. Now, I realize the analogy I'm about to make is a three-legged analogy is going to wobble. Is a human analogy. God took great care in his creation. It could seem, reading Genesis chapter 1, that it's just, and it's finished. And you might would look at that as you were doing dishes or taking out the trash. I did this, I did this, and I did this. But failing to realize that a sovereign God is the creator God and that because he's the creator God and the sovereign God, there's a comprehensive plan. If you find yourself this morning a female, that's all of God's comprehensive plan. And of that comprehensive plan, God said it is good. And if you find yourself this morning being a male, God said of that creation, it is good. Now, because he has made you in such a way, 
you now have a purpose. A purpose according to His divine will. So when I'm praying to the God in heaven, it's significant that I see it that way because He is the Creator, and because He is the Creator, it denotes a significant sovereign plan. It's not haphazard. Ergo, I can pray, and I'm not here yet. In the passage, I'm getting ahead of myself. Ergo, as a child of God, I should pray in the will of God. That's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. Because I think I've got a pretty good plan myself. And I think that maybe I've thought this out a little bit. Only to failing to realize that the God of eternity past formed me and made me and knew me, 139th Psalm, in my mother's. Such knowledge, he says, is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain unto it. That's another way of saying that's a circuit overload there. So who am I to claim that what I'm asking of God and what I want of God is superior to His will? God the Father, it speaks of a comprehensive plan. We think of God the Father, not only does it speak of a creator and a comprehensive plan, but I think we'd miss all of it if we said it did not speak of compassion. That's the exact analogy used in Scripture, is it not? If a good father on this earth would give good gifts, how much greater is your father which is in heaven given unto you? So much so that if a son would come and say, Dad, I'd like a loaf of bread, would you give him a stone? No. I mean, there's some this time of year in particularly. Birthdays and all, your child comes up to you and says, Dad, you know, this is something that I'd really like to, to have. As a good father, if it was in your means and ability, and you saw that in your knowledge it would not hurt a child, what would be your likely give indication? You do it. That is the very analogy that God the Father gave concerning you and I. If there's ever been a good father on the face of the earth that could stand as a metric test for what a father was supposed to be, the greatest human father is is insignificant in comparison to God the Father in heaven. No wonder it is to be said of God that God is always good. It is in His very nature and aspect. Every good and every perfect gift cometh down. Where's it come from? From the Father. And there's no variableness nor shadow of turning in Him. My, park there for a moment and think about this. There's never a time that God's not good. Now there's times in my life that I'm not good. There's times in my life that if my relationship with God was completely contingent upon my behavior, then I often would not be a son of God. I thank God that my relationship to God the Father is through Jesus Christ. In whom it is said of Jesus Christ, the Father said, This is my beloved Son. I am well pleased in Him. That the righteousness that pleases God the Father is found exclusively in Jesus Christ. Not me. At the moment of salvation, I received a glorious gift. 
I receive the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am robed with Christ's righteousness. You know what that means? It means when God the Father looks at me, He does not see me as what I was. He sees me as what I am through Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about me being seated together in heavenly places. For all practical and purposes, intents and purposes, I am just as sure of my presence in heaven as I was already there. Why? Because it's through the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, His goodness to me is in his nature because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ which I have received by salvation. We think about God the Father, we think of an exalted significance. Our creator, a comprehensive plan, and a great compassion. Let's focus for a moment on the second half of this. Our Father, which art in heaven. And my mind constantly wants to go to that next phrase, hallowed be thy name. But we're just, we're just dealing with that phrase, in heaven. Just a few things to consider about heaven. Heaven is a distinctive place. By distinctive place, I mean that heaven has different realms with its regard. Think, for instance, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and note this, speaking of Jesus Christ, made higher than the heavens. Now, that's either a translation error or it's a denotation that there are more than one realms of heaven. Note, if you will, in the scriptures, there are three. One of them we would refer to as the atmospheric heaven. For instance, our memory passage for this month is Isaiah 55 and verse 10. And it talks about that snow and rain coming from heaven right now. We're blessed that the only one that can see out of a window is me. It's like an ark, you know, there's one window. But if I look out through the foyer here, I can see to some degree that it's overcast and it's probably raining. And that rain comes from the atmospheric heaven. That is not the heaven to which is being referred here. Though certainly the atmospheric rain and the atmospheric heaven are under God's realm. You say, I don't know if I believe that. Well, then we need to go back to Genesis chapter number 6. And when Noah went into the ark, God shut the door. And what did it begin to do? Rain. And at whose decree did it rain? Well, perhaps we need to go to the kings and talk about Elijah, a man of faith, the very one whose name is mentioned in James chapter 5, who prayed and it did not rain for the space of three and a half years. The atmospheric heaven is under the realm of the Almighty God. Why? He created it. The firmaments he called heaven. Notice the second one that you'll find in scriptures. We might call this the celestial heaven. The celestial heaven. Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 10. He talks about the stars of heaven and the constellations and the sun and the moon. We might call this space. That's a realm, if you will, of heaven. By the way, I would note of reference 
the great impact the sun and moon have. And biblically, they also are under the dominion of the Almighty God. For was it not in Joshua's time that God calls the sun to hang still in the skies? Will it not be in the time of John that reveals to us in the book of Revelation there'll be a time where God will cause the sun not to shine? Will there not be a time that he will cause things to turn into blood? Does he not control these things? He does. The celestial heaven. But this is not the reference of the heaven that he's speaking of. Our Father which art in heaven. This is the third heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul, I believe speaking of himself, he said, I knew a man. It was called up, the third heaven. Couldn't tell whether he was alive or dead. He said, I was called up. And he begins to talk about what he saw. And it's akin to what John saw in Revelation chapter 6. In the great vision, he said, I saw a throne. And him that sat upon the throne. My friend, this is God the Father that sits upon this throne. This is his kingdom. This is his realm, his domicile, his residence. This is the heaven to which the Lord is speaking here when he says, Our Father, which art in heaven. He sits upon the chiefest realm, the throne in the chiefest realm, high and exalted. And the psalmist writes one day that he will make earth. You know what he's going to make earth? His footstool. Now let that analogy sink in for a moment. Some of you might have a little ottoman at your house. And you'll sit back in your easy chair. And you'll slide that ottoman. And what do you do with that ottoman? You put your feet on it. That's the analogy that God gave between that third realm of heaven and earth. All earth is subject unto him. By virtue of his placement, his distinctive place being seated in the great heavenlies above, it expresses that he is a distinct person. He sees all. He knows all. The God that has created the heavens and the earth has the power to differentiate from man's inferior power. He is in fact supreme. He has a distinctive power. He can intervene. The scripture records that our Lord sits on the throne of heaven. In Revelation chapter 7, John says and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. When we reference heaven and God the Father, we're speaking of the fact that He is the Father of believers. He sits in an exalted place. He is not like some earthly father, at times uninterested, at times unmotivated, at times unkind, at times unaware, at times unable, but rather He is ready, He is able, He is all-powerful, and He cares for you and I. He is truly the dearest to saints. He is to be seen, in fact, Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, as the Abba Father. That word Abba has the idea, is Aramaic, of dear Father. He is not distant. Our Father, which art in heaven. Now my last few moments here, 
What does it mean as a child of God that he's my father? What does that mean for me? Let me give you a list of just seven considerations of what it should mean to you that you're interacting with the Father God in heaven through Jesus Christ. I think number one, it means this. There's no fear. There's no fear. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Or I should say, not that there's no fear. There's no need for fear. There's no need for fear. The fact that there might be fear in your life is not the same thing as it doesn't have to be fear in your life. Because he is our Father in heaven, there need be no fear. He is our dear Father. Because he is our dear Father, he careth for you. I'm reminded of the scriptures that we love him because he first loved us. And where fear is, fear hath torment. And he says of that torment that fear brings, you have not known the perfect love. You see, by virtue of me having the opportunity to come boldly into the presence of God that's seated in the great heavenlies on the very throne, what should I fear? Shall tribulation separate me from this God? Shall persecution? Shall sickness? Shall pain? Shall death separate me? To see God as your Father in heaven to see that as the focus of your prayer, the address of your prayer, is to signify that there's no need for me as his child to be fearful. You know, some of this I think about in a very practical way. So Lord's, you know, given to us a few children, and I, I think about times that children are fearful. And there have been times, sadly, that I, I, I'd see one of my children being fearful, and i just kind of roll my eyes at it. Because in that moment, I failed to realize how important it was to them. But from my perspective as a parent, there's just nothing to be afraid about. You know, take for a moment, place yourself in that scenario theologically. He's my father. What have I need to be afraid of? When I consider the fatherhood and what it means to a saint, not only does it mean no need of fear, but it means no need of uncertainty. No need of uncertainty. 1 Peter 5, 7, the hymnist said, was written for you. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. It's a beautiful word picture to cast. It means to take completely off and to place completely on something or someone else. It has the idea that we would use to cast aside a writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 says, laying aside all sin that does so easily beset you. Just cast it off. The, Paul to the Ephesian church in the fourth chapter of Ephesians says, it talks about our old man. Put it away. Put it away. Why? But you don't know this great need I have. But your Father in heaven knoweth what you have need of before you ask. Therefore, I could say that as a child of God, recognizing the fatherhood of God that is brought to me as being a son of God through salvation, I could say there need not be any uncertainty. I could say, number three, there need not be any isolation. I think of the psalmist. I believe it's the 66th Psalm, the 18th verse. He has set the solitary into families.
That's a powerful expression. The psalmist says, When my father and mother forsake me, then will he lift me up. What a consideration is there that sometimes, because of my faith in and through Jesus Christ, I find myself isolated sometimes from family or friends, certainly from culture and society. I'm isolated. But I'm reminded of the truths of Scripture. There is a friend that sticketh closer to a than a brother. David, in referencing God the Father, put it this way, and I hearken back to the 139th Psalm. If I was to take the wings of the morning, go off to the morning, fly away as it were, behold, thou art there. If I were to make my bed in hell, behold, thou art Art there. And I, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, will be with you always, even to the end of the world. Ah, oh, there's no need for isolation, for he has promised that he will not forsake us. Considering the fatherhood to which we pray, the Father God, there need to be no self focus in life. Let me show you something here. You're Matthew chapter 6. Let me point something out. Take our little pointer for a moment. Look at this. Look at the text for a moment. I know we read this earlier and our focus is just on that phrase there. The Father which art in heaven. But I want you to notice a few things. He's teaching his disciples. He's teaching them individually. This prayer is to be the model for each individual believer as well. But look if you will. After this manner, pray ye. Ye's plural. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as it is in heaven. Give what? Us. Our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You know what's not present in this model prayer? A single personal pronoun. He does not use I, me, my, or mine. I find that to be fascinating. I could simply look at that and say, well, that's because he's speaking to a plurality of people and that's proper syntax. It is, but it's also an individual framework. Why? Well, he has set the solidary into families. One of the great problems that individual people face this is not only just a Christian, not only a believers do this, but I'm talking individuals broadly, is a desire to focus on self. Self-pity drives at the heart of depression and discouragement and despondency quite often. That will be the result of one that imbibes often on self-focus. Note here. There's no self-focus. There's only plural pronouns. Why? Because we are fellow children with them of the household of faith. Note a couple of passages. I think of Ephesians chapter 3. It says that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes all understanding that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. According to the power that worketh in us. 
Unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. One lesson here, the model prayer that we see, because there's a Father in heaven, we are, 1 John chapter 3, the sons of God. It's a plurality. My prayer life should not singularly be revolved around isolation and self-focus. In fact, neither should my life in Galatians chapter 6. The scriptures admonishes, as we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially them who are of the household of faith. There's no self-focus mentioned here. The focus, rather, is on the glory and purpose and power of the Father in heaven. In fact, that's the very sentiment that you find in the Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17. If it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. No need for isolation. No need for self-focus. Number five, no need for doubt. I'm reminded of a message recently in Romans chapter 14. It talks about receiving the brother, but not according to doubtful disputations. Doubt. It concludes that chapter, for whatsoever is not of faith is of sin. There's no need of doubt. Because he is in heaven. Because he is the father above. The father of lights. Because he is the creator. Because he has a comprehensive plan. Because of his great compassion. All resources are his. We can trust him to be our supply and the fulfiller of all of our needs. Certainly he has blessed us, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. If he has fulfilled our greatest need through Jesus Christ, surely he is capable of fulfilling all our needs according to his mercy in Christ Jesus. I think of Philippians chapter 4 with that. Number 6, there be no, de uh, no need no need of disobedience. Going back to that relationship between father and son, between father and child, to whom is it incumbent? Which one is supposed to obey and comply? Well, the child's supposed to obey. You know, it'd be one thing if we're just praying and we do not consider for the fact to whom we pray. But we're praying to the Father which art in heaven. If he's our Father, then that means there's a sovereign plan for our life. There's things that he wants us to engage in. There's things he doesn't want us to engage in. There is a way in which he wants Ephesians chapter 5 for us to walk. Therefore, we as a child of God should be preoccupied about what we can and should be doing according to his will. Ephesians chapter 5 reminds us, Be ye not unwise but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 50 says, Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. In reference and context, they were defaming the dear Lord. Is not this the carpenter's son? Are not his brethren and his sisters and his mother with us? It's likely that some of his brothers, among them James and Jude, were unbelievers. They were present when he said this. 
Whosoever doeth the will of my father, the same as my brother and sister and mother. Our identity to the father is often made through our compliance to his will. 1 John chapter 5. Speaking of the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. 1 John chapter 5, 1 and 2. And number 7. There need be no disconnect. Because he cares for us, because he loves for us, before he provides for us, he equally and also loves to commune with us. You know, much like I think of the parable, uh, Luke 15, we often call it the parable of the lost son. And we do that in keeping, not because the Bible ascribes it that way, but we do that in context of remembering the, the context of it. There's a series of lost things. There's a, a lost coin and a lost sheep that, that precedes that passage. And that 15th chapter rounds out with the lost son. And then in chapter 16, you got the lost soul with the rich man that dies and enters eternity in agony in hell. So we get to chapter 15, we talk about the parable of lost son. But a great indication is given in the attributes of the father. Did not the father care for the prodigal? Did he not give concern to the prodigal? Oh, let me ask you this. Did he not allow the prodigal to make his own individual choice? That's correct. The father in, in, in heaven did not supersede his will over the son's. He did not force him to stay in the place of blessing. But he took of his blessings, good blessings, that the good father had bestowed upon him for that day, and he went out in riotous living and returned unto himself. The scripture uses that phrase in chapter 15. It says, and he came to himself. He's eating the husk that the swine did eat. He said, even the most lowly of servants eats better than this. I shall return unto my father. And why he's a long ways off, we see the attribute of the Father. He seeth him. He seeth him. He knew it was him. And he went to meet him. Man, can I tell you that's the exact imagery of your Father which art in heaven? He knows your frame. The 103rd Psalm, that same Psalm, I believe, where it talks about he has removed our sin from as far as the east is from the west. That very Psalm says he knoweth our frame that it is but dust. He knows your failures. He knows your proclivities to evil. He has made you. He understands you. But He calls you to live a life of holiness by the power that is in you through Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit of God. But He longs to commune with you. Why should we then not pray without ceasing? For He is the God of our salvation. I think sometimes the reason our prayer life wanes so drastically is because we do not realize the fatherhood of God towards us. We've placed him off in this distant corner, almost like an estranged earthly dad that we only visit every other weekends and twice on holidays. And he's way out there, and we do not recognize that it was his divine plan that sent the Son into the world, that tabernacled him with flesh. It was Jesus Christ that said, I came to do the will of the... He did not say, I come to do my own will. I came to do the will of the Father. 
It was the Father that put all of this into motion, even the salvation of your soul. It is He that hath planned this. It is He that has put all of this together. And yet too often, there's a grand disconnect. We have failed to realize that in prayer we commune with the Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.